So we've been working our way through the book of 2 Corinthians, and we're now, I believe, on week 4 of 2 Corinthians. And if you remember, Paul had founded the church in Corinth. He had served there as the uh, senior pastor, if you will. He served in Corinth, shepherding the church of God there, and ended up leaving. After serving 18 months, the church is continuing to go and grow, but not without difficulty. And Paul, there's a series of letters that takes place between Paul and the church, and some in the church are apparently um, upset with Paul, and there's some false teachers, and they're accusing Paul of some wrongdoing. And Paul, in second, the letter to the Corinthians, the second letter to the Corinthians, he uh, testifies to the fact that he is an apostle called by God. He defends his apostleship and his ministry. And the letter is thus very personal. This is a church that he loved, that he adored, that he cared for, that he knew personally, and he feels as though he has to defend himself and the ministry that God has given him. Though he does so without pride, but instead in humility, as we will see today. So as the first week we talked about uh, Paul understanding God's purposes in suffering. Paul was suffering, and he talked about how suffering equips us for ministry, suffering builds our faith, and suffering unites us in prayer. So he lays this foundation of suffering for the Corinthians. He wants them to know that he has suffered. And then in the second week, he talked about how he was confident in Christ, and that his confidence stemmed from serving God with sincerity, from submitting to God's will, and from trusting in God's promises. So he says, I've suffered. I know what it's like to suffer. God's using that suffering. I also want you to know that I'm confident in Christ as I stand before, as I come before you writing this letter now. And then last week, we talked about the Christian faith. And Paul wrote how the Christian faith is personal, that it was all about the Corinthians having a personal relationship with the Lord, and it was relational the way they related to one another, but it was first and foremost rooted in the truth of the Gospel, the grace offered through Jesus Christ and His atoning work on the cross. So it's with that in mind that we come to 2 Corinthians 2, verses 12-17, through 17, where Paul continues to talk about service, and he talks about the grace that God has given him to serve, hence our sermon title this morning. So without further ado, if you'll stand with me for the reading of God's Word. 2 Corinthians 2, verses 12-17. through 17. Now when I came to Troas for the Gospel of Christ, and when a door was opened for me in the Lord, I had no rest for my spirit, not finding Titus my brother, but taking my leave of them, I went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumph in Christ, and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of Him in every place. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, an aroma from death to death. To the other, an aroma from life to life. And who is adequate for these things? For we are not like the many, peddling the Word of God, but as from sincerity, but as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading, the hearing, and the applying of His Word. Amen. You may be seated. So first I want to look at verses 12 and 13. Verses 12 and 13, Paul writes, Now when I came to Troas for the Gospel of Christ... And when a door was opened for me in the Lord, I had no rest for my spirit. I came, a door was opened, but I had no rest for my spirit, not finding Titus, my brother. 
But taking my leave of them, I went on to Macedonia. So Paul, he goes to Troas expecting to find Titus. We don't know all of the details. We can, we can imagine what some of the details are, but apparently he knew that Titus was going to come to Troas on his way back to meet Paul. So he goes to Troas to actually meet Paul there. He doesn't find him. And he says, God opened a door for ministry. He opened a door for the gospel. But I was burdened to see Titus. You see, in these verses, Paul makes it clear that he's burdened to see Titus because he wants to hear his report about the believers in Corinth. If you know the backstory, Paul sends Titus to Corinth. He wants to know, how did they respond? How did the church respond to this harsh letter that I wrote to them previously? In fact, he's so burdened to see Titus that he left behind what he refers to as an open door. And we know from Colossians 4, that this open door, Paul prayed for an open door for the gospel to be made known. So he views this as a positive thing. That the gospel was being proclaimed. That God opened up opportunities to him to do so. He says, but my heart was troubled. Because I wanted to see Titus. See, Paul wanted to make sure that the Corinthian believers were standing firm in their faith and faithfully obeying the Lord. He loved them and he wanted... He wanted what was best for them. He wanted to know how they received his letter. When Titus brought this letter, how did they receive it? Did it cause them sorrow? Was it sorrow that led to repentance? And Paul learned the answers to these questions by traveling on to Macedonia. We read later that he goes on to Macedonia, he finds Titus there, and he learns these answers. We know this because in 2 Corinthians 7, verses 5-9, through we read this. If you want to turn over a few pages... To 2 Corinthians 7, verses 5-9, through Paul picks up where he left off. He went to Troas. He, could, he didn't find Titus. And then he, he goes on in 7 to say, And then, so therefore I went to Macedonia. For even when we came to Macedonia, starting at verse 5, our flesh had no rest, but we were afflicted on every side. Conflicts without, fears within. He says, I, I was afflicted on, on every side. There was fear inside of me and conflict. and He says, but God, verse 6, who comforts the depressed. I'll tell you, if there's, if there's an encouraging passage for ministry, it's this one. That ministry is not always easy. That the Christian life is not always easy. And Paul actually says he was depressed. He says, I, I cared so much for you Corinthians that I was even depressed to think, of where you might be in your relationship with the Lord. But God, who comforts the depressed, comforted us by coming by the coming of Titus. So he finds Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted in you. As he reported to us your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. He says, God comforted me by helping me see Titus, and the news that Titus brought was good news. Verse 8, For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it, though I, I did regret it. For I see now that the letter caused you sorrow, though only for a little while. I didn't want to cause you sorrow. I was worried about the sorrow that I caused you. But I rejoice, I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. He says, I found Titus, and praise God, Titus said, the letter did make you sorrowful, but it caused you to repent. 
And that was an encouragement to me. It was an encouragement to me to see Titus. It was an encouragement to me to hear this report. Just praise God in 2 Corinthians 7. But as he's writing, he's remembering his experience in Troas in chapter 2, and he says, when I came to Troas for the Gospel of Christ, I didn't find Titus. I didn't have that information yet. I didn't know what the report was. So I had no rest for my spirit because I, I hadn't seen Titus yet. So that's when I decided I'm going on to Macedonia to see what, to see what happened, to see how you received this letter. So with that in mind, that's verses 12 and 13. We're going to look at primarily verses 14 through 17. And as we do, I want you to know the first point in our sermon outline is, number one, He conquers our hearts. Number one, He conquers our hearts. Look at verse 14 again with me. Paul writes, But thanks be to God. So he says, I I faced this great distress. Titus wasn't there. I didn't know what the report was. I didn't know how you responded to my letter. But thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. And this might sound like Paul is simply saying that God always gives us the victory. That we are always victorious in Him. And while there is some semblance to that truth, or to that idea that we are victorious in Jesus, one of my favorite hymns of all times is Victory in Jesus, right? It's not that we're victorious, it's that Jesus is victorious. And we are in Him. So Paul's not saying, thanks be to God, because He made me victorious. I was a mighty conqueror. It's not at all what Paul is saying here. Instead, he's actually painting a word picture. And he's referencing a common practice of his day to point to a greater spiritual truth. Well, the New American Standard says that He leads us in triumph. The ESV says He leads us in triumphal procession. A little bit more clear here, if we understand what this triumphal procession was. The word triumphal procession, it's a single Greek word, and it's only used one other time in Scripture, namely in Colossians 2.15, where we read this. When He had disarmed the rulers and authorities... This is God. When He had disarmed the rulers and authorities, He made a public display of them, having triumphed over them. That's the triumphal procession. He led them in triumphal procession, having triumphed over them through Him. So He disarms the rulers, the authorities, and He leads them in triumph, and triumphal entry. The picture is one of a general who, after he had defeated his enemy and Biblical times would lead the captives through the city, city streets on their way to be executed. It was the one of a conquering general who would march through the streets with his enemies showing their defeat just before they were put to death. So it's a shocking picture, really. Paul is not pridefully proclaiming the victory that is his, nor is he even portraying himself as the victor. Instead, when he says that God always leads us in triumph, he's pointing to God as the triumphal general and both himself and other believers as the ones who have been conquered. He says, I've been conquered. I've been defeated by Christ. I'm being paraded through the street with Christ, the conquering general, leading me on my way to death. And Paul, when he says, but thanks be to God, 
who always leads us in triumphal entry or triumph in Christ, he's praising God for the fact that God is always victorious over us. The great quote by R. Kent Hughes who said this, he said, quote, a vibrant, useful spiritual life is a death march in which the marcher repeatedly dies. It is the path pioneered and mastered by Christ, and it is the course that Paul strode as he said, I die daily. It is the course celebrated in the triumphal procession, which is at the heart of the passage before us. You see, as believers, as followers of Jesus, we can say that the old self, the self which was hostile to God, has passed away and we have been made new. That's why Paul goes on in 2 Corinthians 5, starting in verse 17, to say, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. You see, the old Paul was hostile to Jesus. But that old Paul was put to death on the road to Damascus. And that new Paul was born. Thus, Paul doesn't see himself as a great victor parading through the streets. Instead, he sees, him, he sees God as the great victor. If anything, prior to his conversion, he saw himself as the great victor parading through the streets. I'll bring justice. I'll show them. And then, God conquers his heart. God takes him captive and makes him his slave. So he sees God as the great victor, the great victor who defeated the old Paul and enabled the new Paul to be born. If you think about Paul on this road to Damascus, I was listening to a message this week by Alistair Begg, and he talked about Paul in great triumph parading into Damascus, ready to, to capture Christians, ready to show Christians who's boss, so to speak. And God meets him on the road, conquers his soul, captures his heart, and Paul leaves by being lowered through a hole in the wall in a basket. He he comes in great victory, and what seems to be great victory and triumph, but he leaves small and not very mighty because God conquered his heart. God gave him a new Mission. The old Paul, the one who was hostile to Jesus, was put to death on that road. And the new Paul was born. So at the time of salvation, the old self was put to death. However, Paul also understood that the sanctifying process, the sanctification process, the process by which we grow and continue to be saved, required a continual dying to self. So there's a one-time death whereby the old self dies, but there's also this continual death as a believer, where we continue to die daily, as Paul said. John Piper says it well when he says, Jesus spoke repeatedly to his disciples about taking up their cross and following him. He made it clear that if any would follow him, they must deny themselves, which means giving up their lives, spiritually, symbolically, even physically, if necessary. This was a prerequisite for being a follower of Christ who proclaimed that trying to save our earthly lives would result in losing our lives in the kingdom. But those who would give up their lives for his sake would find eternal life. Indeed, Jesus even went so far as to say that those who are unwilling to sacrifice their their lives for him cannot be his disciples. End quote. See, that's why Jesus said in Luke 9, verses 23 and 24, he said, 
If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever wishes to lose his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. And Luke 14.27, whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And I want you to understand this. This carrying our cross is not like we sometimes portray it. This is not the cross of being socially awkward or, or the cross of living paycheck to paycheck. We sometimes think of our burdens as carrying our cross. We go, well, you know, I've got a pretty poor paying job, but it's my cross to bear. Or, you know, I've got a difficult spouse, and that's my cross to bear. Or my parents don't understand how hard it is to be a teenager. That's my cross to bear, or whatever. That is not at all what the first century reader would have understood when these words were written, when Jesus spoke these words. Jesus isn't talking about difficult life, difficult, difficult relationships, or even chronic illness. He's talking about giving up your life. The cross was an instrument of death. And he said, maybe the, the modern day equivalent is take up your electric chair. It was an instrument of death. He said, lay down your life and follow me. So in verses 12 and 13, Paul says, I went to Troas and a door was opened for me, but I was burdened. I was burdened because I had no rest for my spirit. Titus wasn't there. I wanted to know how you were doing. I wanted to know how you received my letter. Had you repented of your sin? So I went to Macedonia and I found Titus to hear his report. And then he says, And thanks be to God who always leads us in triumphal entry. See, it wasn't pride that caused Paul to not go to Corinth. It was his love for the Corinthians that motivated his actions, his concern. It wasn't in pride that he wrote this harsh letter. It was out of love and care for them. And he said, I want you to lay down your lives for Jesus because I want you to know that I am laying down my life for Jesus daily. What Paul is saying is, thanks be to God who always conquers the hearts of the saints. He's saying, praise God that He indeed leads us in triumphal entry and enables us to put to death the deeds of the flesh. In Romans 8.13, Paul said, if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So here he's saying, God is faithful. God is faithful. And praise God that His Spirit is alive in you and is leading you to put to death your old sinful behaviors. See, just as God conquered Paul's heart, so also He conquered the hearts of the Corinthian believers and led them to repentance. So Paul says, praise God. Praise God that He has victory over us. Praise God that He conquered the old self. That He's helping us daily put to death the old self. That He has conquered our hearts. So having seen the first point in our sermon outline, He conquers our hearts. Now let's consider the second point. Number two, He calls us to faithfulness. He calls us to faithfulness. And I want you to consider these this text in relation to serving. Paul's talking about serving the Lord. He's talking about being used by the Lord. And he says, praise God that He, that he conquers our hearts. That He gives us a place or the, the desire to serve Him, to live for Him, 
Not because it's in and of ourselves, but because we put to death the old self and we live in light of what He has done for us. The second point is He calls us to faithfulness. In serving Him, He calls us to faithfulness. Look at verses 14-16 through 16 again with me. In 14, Paul writes, but he says, But thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumph in Christ. But thanks be to God, who always leads us, and manifests us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of Him in every place. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God, among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, an aroma from death to death. To the other, an aroma from life to life. That as this parade took place, you need to understand that there would be flowers that were thrown on the ground, that there would be incense that would be burnt, that there was an aroma that came from this. There was a celebration of this parade as this general walked through the streets, parading his army and also his army and also parading his captors. There's this aroma, but this aroma was sweet to those who were on the right side of the, of the battle, so to speak. But to some, this aroma was an aroma of death. It says, to one it was an aroma of life to life, to the other of death to death. And the point that Paul is driving home is that God is faithful and therefore calls us to faithfulness. He says that God manifests He makes known through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of Him in every place. He makes known through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of Him everywhere. That's a promise. That's an incredible promise. And that promise should immediately make us think of Jesus' last words before His his ascension in Acts 1.8. In Acts 1.8, Jesus said, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria, even to the remotest parts of the earth. He says, you're going to receive power. The sweet aroma is going to come out of you, and you're going to be my witnesses. People will smell it, so to speak. Not just here, but everywhere. Both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria, even to the remotest parts of the earth. You see, the command and the promise are inseparable in this text. I say this because He commands us to do it. Be my witnesses while enabling us to do it. He says you will receive power. You will when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses. And thanks be to God who manifests, makes known the sweet aroma of the knowledge of Him through you. See, God calls us to faithfulness. He says, be a sweet aroma. Be my witnesses. For I will make you a sweet aroma. And I will make you my witness. He calls us to do something which is entirely impossible for us to do, but is completely promised that He will do it through Him. He says, do this. Be a sweet aroma and be my witness. Which you can't do, by the way, but I will do this in you. The call is a call to be faithful. And it stems from the fact that He is faithful. Now notice that we're not responsible for people's response to the Gospel. We're only responsible for the faithful proclamation. And that's what I want you to understand in this. Paul says that God manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of Him and that to those who are being saved, it's an aroma of life to life. But to those who are perishing, it's an aroma of death to death. See, the response to the Gospel 
is mixed. That to some, it's a sweet aroma. To others, it's like the stench of death. And it's not our job to try to make the Gospel smell good. We spend way too much time trying to make the Gospel sweet in one's nostrils. No, I'm not saying we need to make the Gospel not attractive. That we need to say it in such a way, or proclaim it in such a way, or be, act, interact with people in such a way that we're turning them off. What I'm saying is it's not our job to make it smell good. It's not our job to make it sound good to the hearer. Instead, it's our job to proclaim it. There's danger. There's danger on both sides. There's real danger in making ourselves a martyr. Whereby we turn people off from the Gospel because we are Because we are offensive, the Gospel will always be offensive, but if we're offensive, it's very easy to become offensive and then make ourselves a martyr. Look, people, they deny the Gospel. Look at me, I'm I'm getting punished here. No, you're probably being martyred because of your own pride and sinfulness in the way in which you're sharing the Gospel. But, there's also an element where we make it so sweet that we strip the Gospel of its power. We don't even talk about the truth of the Gospel. We need to speak the truth in love knowing that there will be a mixed response to it. And regardless of that response, we are called to proclaim it. We're called to point others to the grace of God. That's why Psalm 96 says, Tell of His glory among the nations, His wonderful deeds among all the peoples. Or Luke 24, 46-48, Jesus said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in His name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. You're called to testify. Matthew 28, 18-20, And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to Me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And in Mark 6.15, He said to them, Go into all the world and preach the Gospel. Or Romans 10, How will they hear without a preacher? Or Matthew 5, You're the, you're the light of the world. Let your light shine before men. You're the salt of the earth. Don't lose your saltiness. So having seen that He conquers our hearts and He calls us to faithfulness, that there will be mixed responses to the Gospel, but our job is to faithfully proclaim the truth of what God has done for us through His Son, Jesus Christ. Now let's consider a third and final point. Number three, He overcomes our inadequacy. He overcomes our inadequacy. Look at verses 16 and 17 again with me. Paul writes, And who is adequate for these things? For we are not like the many, peddling the word of God, but as from sincerity, but as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. The phrase, who is adequate for these things, can be translated like the NIV does, and I believe should be translated this way, who is equal to such a task? To which the obvious answer is, no one. No one's adequate. I went to bed last night and as I got in bed, Kim said, are you ready for tomorrow? And I said, nope. I said, I am wholly inadequate. 
And then I said, and the funny thing is, the third point of my sermon outline is, he overcomes our inadequacy. Praise God for that. Praise God. Because no one is adequate in and of themselves. No one is able to put to death the deeds of the flesh and produce within themselves the sweet aroma of Christ. No one is able to do God's work in and of themselves. The Greek word translated inadequate here is also seen in Matthew 3.11 where we read this, As for me, this is John the Baptist speaking, he says, As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit, I'm not adequate is the word, I'm not adequate to remove his sandals. Because he will baptize you with, with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And Paul himself in 1 Corinthians 15 Verses 9 and 10, or verse 9 said this, he said, For I am the least of the apostles, and not fit, not adequate, to be called an apostle. Paul doesn't write to the Corinthians, who are questioning his apostleship, questioning his motives, questioning his every move, and he doesn't say, listen guys, I'm the apostle, get in line. Instead he says, I'm not even adequate to be called an apostle. Because no one's adequate. And yet he says in 2 Timothy 2, verse 2, he says this, writes to Timothy and he says, The faithful things you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, and trust these to faithful men who will be able, and the word is adequate, and trust these things, the things you've heard, and trust them to other men who will be adequate to teach such things. So he says, no one's adequate. I'm not adequate. John the Baptist wasn't adequate. Oh, by the way, Timothy, find adequate men to teach these things, right? How can this be? How can Paul say that no one is adequate and yet tell Timothy to find men who are? The answer is found in verse 10 of 1 Corinthians 9, right? In 9, he says, in in, uh, verse 9, he says, For I am the least of the apostles and not fit to be called. I'm not adequate to be called an apostle. I'm sorry, I'm looking at 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 9. He says, for I am the least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle. I'm not adequate. But then he says in verse 10, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. By God's grace, I am what I am. And his grace did not prove vain, but I labored more than all of them. God's grace was effective. Yet not I, but the grace of God within me. I love this passage. He says, I'm wholly inadequate. I'm not even fit to be called an apostle, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. Therefore, God's grace didn't prove vain, but I labored. I worked hard. I worked harder than all the apostles, but not I. It was God's grace in me. This is not doublespeak. This is Paul saying, God graciously enabled me to work. God graciously overcame my inadequacy. It was all by the grace of God. That's why in 2 Corinthians 3, later on, he says, verses 4 and 5, he says, such confidence we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are adequate in ourselves. Paul was a confident man. He says, I'm wholly inadequate, but he's also confident. He says, not that we are adequate in and of ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. See, Paul 
understood, he was confident, not because of the power within him, like our secular society so often says. We talk about, you can do anything you want, little Johnny. You can be anything you want to be. Paul didn't have that attitude. His attitude was, my adequacy comes from God because I am wholly inadequate. This week I read a, a um, quote from a famous preacher, probably one of the most famous preachers in America, who um, said this, he said, no matter how many times you get knocked down, keep getting back up. God sees your resolve. He sees your determination. And when you have done everything you can do, that's when God will step in and do what you can't do. That is utter nonsense. He says, no matter how many times you get, listen to this, no matter how many times you get knocked down, God sees your resolve, He sees your determination when you've done everything. God, no! No! Before you do all this stuff, you need to realize I am wholly inadequate before God. I can't do this. And I get myself into trouble when I take this advice and I start writing my sermons. You know, the only time I don't have a message that's ever in front of me is when I'm preaching. This is the most freeing time, right? Because right now I'm preaching and I, I don't have to think about the next message that I'm writing. It's when, as soon as I say amen, then I think, oh boy, i got to do that again, right? <laughs> i got to figure out what, what is God teaching me through this passage? How do I now live that out in order to proclaim that? Because i got to live it. Right? But when I get, when I start, and I, when I get knocked down, and I get back up, and I resolve, and I have determination, and I do everything I can, and then when I can't get any further, then I look to God, I'm already in a bad spot. Instead, I need to start with, God, I can't do this. I really am wholly inadequate to preach Your Word. And it is only then, it is then, that God is glorified. Not this, you can, you just need to put your mind to it attitude. This, by the way, doesn't mean that we can't do anything. It doesn't mean that we sit back and wait for God to work either. On the contrary, Paul says he recognized his own inadequacy so that Christ's adequacy might be made active in him. That's why in Philippians 3, it's a rather long passage, but I'm going to read it. Philippians 3, verses 4 through 14. He says, although I myself, he's saying, I'm Paul. I might, if anyone's going to have confidence in themselves, if anyone's going to be prideful, it's me. Although I myself might have confidence in the flesh. If anyone has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more than them. Circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews as to the law, a Pharisee as to zeal, a persecutor of the church as to righteousness which is found in the law, found blameless. He says, if anyone has anything to brag about, it is me, Paul. If anyone could say they're adequate, it is me. Verse 7, but whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in, the surpassing, in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ, Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. Those things were wholly inadequate to make me right with God. Therefore, I count them but rubbish so that I might gain Christ and may be found in Him 
not having a righteousness of my own, derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings, being conformed to His death. You see the connection there? Being conformed to His death, being put to death daily in order that I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. Not that I've already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so I may lay hold of that for which I also was laid hold of by Christ. God captured me and now He's leading me. He's, He's helping me put to death the old self. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He says, I'm pressing on. I'm pressing on and putting the old self to death and being made new, being transformed in the likeness of Christ. You know, I wasn't, I debated whether I was going to say this or not, but I'm going to say it. Um, I've thought a lot about this this week as I've watched the news and as I've listened to uh, speeches and a certain speech that was delivered on Friday. And this is in no means, by no means, uh, me speaking poorly of anyone's policies or anyone's party. Um, and this actually is not a political thing because it, it's on both both sides. And I think almost every president we ever have we've ever had has given this kind of speech. But I was listening to a, a radio commentator talk about how previous a previous speech that was given the word "I" was used seventy some odd times. I will, I will, I will, I will. And that during this speech, it was largely absent. That that was only said three times. And as I looked back over the transcript of the speech, the words that jumped off the page to me again and again and again and again were, we will, we will, we will, we will. And at first I thought, that's right. And I'll tell you, 10 or 15 years ago, I would have, Kim knows me, I get, I get animated, I would have jumped up in front of the TV and would have said, yeah, you're right, we will. And I just felt sad because I thought, I hope that that we will is not rooted in, yeah, we will because pridefully we can do this. You know, we're wholly inadequate. And that kind of thing, well, that may bode well in a political rally. I think sometimes that creeps into the church. And that's, that is so sad when the I will, I will, I will, or even the we will, we will, creeps into the church. Paul doesn't say anything like that. He doesn't say, I'm an apostle, I'm going to do this, so watch me. Instead he says, I'm wholly inadequate. I, I, I can't do it. But God is the one who overcomes our inadequacy. So I pray, I pray that when we say those things, we will do this, we will do this, we will do this. That we're saying, by the grace of God, He will overcome our inadequacy and allow us to do these things, whether it be making our country great, or even better, honoring God and proclaiming the gospel in such a way that He is made great, that His name is made great in this nation.
James 4, verses 6 and 10 says this. Verse 6, he says, But he gives greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And then verse 10, Therefore, humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. God is opposed to the proud. He gives grace to the humble. So humble yourselves, and he will lift you up. He will help you. He will overcome your inadequacy as you serve him. So by way of review, God is faithful. He's faithful. He gives us the grace to serve Him. He conquers our hearts. He calls us to faithfulness. And He overcomes our inadequacy. So here's the big question. So how do we, as Harmony Bible Church, both individually and corporately, specifically apply all of this to our lives? How do we take this and how do we live it out? Well, by grace, we can live lives for His glory and serve Him. By His grace, we can serve Him. See, we must praise Him because number one, He has conquered our hearts. He is victorious over our old selves. And He leads the new man in victory in Him. The victory is ours. Not because the strength is ours, but because He he gives us the strength. He enables us. The victory is in Him. There is victory in Jesus. So when you get up tomorrow morning and you're battling sin, or when you go home tonight and you're battling sin, there is victory in Jesus. But it's not through pulling yourself up by the bootstraps. It's through leaning on Jesus. On letting Him conquer your heart. And being taken captive by Him and His Word. By submitting to His authority in your lives. And saying, yes, Lord Jesus, You are my King. I will follow You and put myself to death daily. We do that as individuals, and we need to do that as a church. As a church, we need to really examine, as we have our annual meeting in a few minutes, our business meeting, or in a little bit, to say, He's conquering our hearts. What has He called us to do? What does it look like to follow Jesus? Number two, He calls us to faithfulness. We praise Him because He calls us to faithfulness. You see, we proclaim the Gospel, we live out the Gospel, and we leave the results to Him. God calls us to faithfulness. For some, as we proclaim the Gospel, it's an aroma of life to life, and for others, it's an aroma of death to death. That should not discourage us from proclaiming the Gospel, from living out the Gospel so that others can see it. But instead, it should encourage us. It should encourage us to continue to do it because He doesn't call us to results. I could not do this job, folks, if it was a results-based job. And I hate to use the term job, but I want to communicate what I'm saying here. If it was a job whereby I had an evaluation and you said, well... Let's see, Pastor, you've grown the church by uh, 14%. That's uh, 6% shy of your goal of 20. And the offering is down by 3%. And That's not the Christian life. That's not ministry. That's not the way that works. And I could not do this job. And I'll tell you what, if that was the measurement by which you were going to measure things, you could find somebody far better than me to stand up here. Because there are men who would fill this room some of whom not by proclaiming the Word of God. God doesn't call us to results. 
He calls us to faithfulness. We proclaim the gospel. And we know that for some, that's an aroma of life to life. And I never cease to be surprised by that. Never. I'm, I hope that it's humility and not false humility. That when somebody says, I received Jesus, I go, you did? <laughs> like, really? Wow. Are, are you sure? Like, uh, were you at Harmony Bible Church when that happened? Like, because it's not about us doing this mighty and awesome work. It's about God doing this mighty and awesome work. But we also know that some, when we faithfully, faithfully proclaim the gospel, it'll be an aroma of death. It'll, it'll stink. The gospel is stench in some people's nostrils. But we're called to faithfully proclaim it. Both as individuals, in our workplace, leaning over the fence, with our family. That's hard. And as a, as a group, as a body, we're called to do this. And number three, we praise God. We must praise Him because He overcomes our inadequacy. We need to humble ourselves. And I don't mean false humility. I mean real humility. We need to really humble ourselves. You know, I mentioned my inadequacy. We, I saw the baddies, Bill and Sue, Friday night, and I said, I'm wholly inadequate. And I said, if I get up there some Sunday, and I said, uh, you know, I've got this. I got it all under control. I can do this. Sue said, well, we'd probably fire you. And I hope so, really. I really hope that if, there, if I get to a place where I'm adequate, where, you, where I feel like I'm adequate in and of myself, not that, I'm ad, not that I don't have adequacy from God, but if I'm adequate in, in and of myself, that if I get to that place that you say, whoa, there's a problem here, Pastor. And yet, i got to say, I see this lived out sometimes in the church. Not just the church, this church. I see people say, I can do this. I am adequate. There's a sense of pride in which it gets said. Really? God wants us to be humble. And it's when we are humble that He overcomes our inadequacy. There's a certain truth to that quote I read earlier by that famous preacher who said, we do all we can and then God shows up. The truth is, God doesn't show up when we're doing all we can oftentimes. When we're doing everything in our own strength, God's not in it. It's when we, need to, it's when we step back and we say, I can't, that God enables us, that He overcomes that inadequacy. So we need to humble ourselves as individuals We need to recognize that even the gifts we have don't come from us. They come from God. That we may be able to teach. We may be able to preach. We may be able to take an offering like nobody's business. But it doesn't matter if you think you're doing that that in your own strength. It is by God's grace that we serve. So we humble ourselves and we say, not I, Lord Jesus, but You. Conquer my heart. Call me to faithfulness and overcome my inadequacy. And when we do that, when we do that, God is faithful and He will use us mightily for His glory. That's what He did with Paul and that's what I'm expecting Him to do here at Harmony Bible Church. Not because I want to be presumptive, but because I believe in His promises. I believe in His grace. I believe that He will build His church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it and that He has called us to be part of that process. So praise God for His grace. Let us remember that He conquers our hearts. He calls us to faithfulness. 
and he is the one who overcomes our inadequacy as we serve him. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for today. Thank you for your grace and your mercy. Thank you for your love that you have shown us. God, I thank you for just your faithfulness, your faithfulness to us, that you have taken our hearts captive, that you call us to die to our own sinful desires, our sinful nature daily. God, that you call us to faithfulness and that you overcome our inadequacy. Do a mighty and awesome work in and through us now, not because of us, but in spite of us, and not for our glory, but for yours. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.